Your sensors have detected the USS Trexan sci-fi with Captain Rico at the helm. This is Angela and Jen, ready for transport, Captain. Thanks, Angela and Jen. Yes, this is Rico, and this is Trexan Sci-Fi, the Star Trek podcast and sci-fi extravaganza coming to you on February the 10th, 2008. This will be podcast number 160. Got a very special show this uh, week for you, everyone. Uh, I did an interview yesterday with Andy Mangles and Michael A. Martin. These are two Star Trek authors who have written quite a few uh, collaborative uh, Star Trek novels together. Uh, The book we're primarily going to be talking about during the interview is called Taking Wing. That's the first of the Riker uh, USS Titan novels that uh, they've put out. uh, It's a currently a four-book series. They wrote the first two books. We talk about uh, their writing careers, uh, Star Trek, uh, lots of different things, Wesley Crusher, just lots of uh, fun stuff. The guys were great, and and it was a really fun interview. So uh, that's going to be coming up right after the intro music. I I just want to say also that uh, this week's show will primarily just be the interview. Uh, We go through quite a bit. It's about an hour long, but I think it's real enjoyable. Uh, So sit back and comfortable and uh, listen in because here we go. Hello everyone and welcome to the Treks in Sci-Fi podcast. Scotty, beat me up. Fascinating. Stand by to receive our transmission. Okay, everyone, today we have two special guests with us on the podcast. We have two Star Trek authors, Andy Mangles and Michael A. Martin who have written uh, many Star Trek novels and what I've looked up, and one that we did a reading in the Treks and Sci-Fi Book Club uh, about a month or so ago, Taking Wing, which is the first book in the William Riker, Titan aboard, you know, Captain Riker on the Titan kind of post-Nemesis novel. So welcome to the show, guys. Howdy. Thank you for having us. So, uh, this is Andy Mangles, so you can recognize my voice. Very and this good. Is Michael Thank A. You. Martin, uh, henceforth known as Mike, I think. All right. Well, I, I really appreciate it. First, just to let you guys know to take some time and to discuss the uh, the book and a little bit about yourselves. Uh, first, I'd like to just give uh, everyone an idea, a little bit about uh, both of you and your background in writing. I, I did some research a little bit before we got started, and it looks like you you're both fairly prolific in, in a lot of writing, and, and I just was curious about both of you and your careers. Is always uh, Have you always been authors? Is that what you set out to do? Did it's something that you uh, picked up later in your life, or, or what? I think uh, my writing career started first, right? Uh, you, you started formally. I mean, you started getting paid to do this before right. I did. Yeah. Right, yeah. Uh, that's I, the key, I, getting paid, yes. <laughs> I started uh, back in the late 80s, and my first uh, published work was in a book called Focus on George Perez, 
uh, from Fanagraphics. And uh, whenever people ask me, how do you get your start as a writer? How do you, how do you become a, a paid writer? Uh, especially in this field, I often tell them that working for the fan magazines is an excellent way because not only do you get used to working on a deadline and working with an editor, but you uh, hopefully also get paid and uh, you can make lots of good contacts. So I uh, toiled for the first several years of my career as a fanzine writer, writing for Amazing Heroes and other magazines, and then eventually branched off into comics. And the comic book work then led to uh, book work. My first book was Star Wars, The Essential Guide to Characters. And uh, I have that one I, sitting over on my shelf right, uh, right as we talk. Great, great. Well, it uh, eventually that led to Star Trek. So, uh, and then Mike and I have been working together. This October will be our tenth anniversary of uh, of writing Star Trek together. Oh, eleventh uh, was eleventh anniversary of stuff beginning to appear in print with both our names on it. Yeah, it looks like you guys have collaborated quite often. Now, uh, now, oh, it is two thousand eight. We've already passed. I see. I can't do math. We made our first sale together <laughs> well, in, you're a it writer. was in ninety six. Math is always usually one of those things for writers or for people who do a lot of work in English, and that seems like it's... As that great philosopher Barbie once said, <laughs> math is hard. Yes. Yes. So, uh, Michael, did you, you were saying earlier that you got started a little later than Andy then? Uh, well, I started collecting paychecks yes. uh, for, for this uh, endeavor uh, a little bit later than Andy did. Uh, I uh, I was writing bad short stories and sending them out to the, the science fiction pulps since, uh, oh God, since the 70s. Uh, I mean, since I was in junior high. And then uh, uh, by the time I got to college, I got sidetracked in uh, liberal arts and music and then got back to uh, making the uh, attempts to sell short stories and finally started uh, actually selling them in the 90s. Uh, the magazine of fantasy and science fiction is where my first published story appeared in uh, June 1996. Um, and it was very shortly after that that uh, Andy called me up to to let me know that uh, Marvel Comics had uh, had gotten the um, Star Trek license, and uh, he wanted to pitch. And uh, uh, Andy and I had become acquainted uh, prior to that when I was working at Dark Horse on uh, you know marketing Star Wars comics and tie-ins through Dark Horse. Uh, and uh, Andy had heard uh, he was acquainted with my uh, rather encyclopedic knowledge of Star Trek and. Uh, Wanted to invited me to, to pitch with him to Marvel, and so we we did. And uh, there's a I, I hope now famous cover of Deep Space Nine issue 14, where Worf is holding a Tribble in one hand and a Phaser in the other, and saying, "You know, buy this comic or the Tribble dies." <laughs> uh, you know, right out of uh, the National Lampoon. Um, that was our first sale, and uh, right after selling that one, we got we were made the regular writers writing team on the series. And, and ran it in the ground. We were, we were on deck when the ship crashed. When they when they canceled all Star Trek line and marched all the all the creative people out into the snow and shot them about two days before Christmas. <laughs> right, not I, our fault. I, I remember I remember that pretty distinctly. I'm a pretty big comic book fan as well, and and, and read most of all of those as as uh, you know. It was one of the time or in that time frame. A lot of that was was the only Trek around, really. I mean, besides novels and that. Uh, to uh, to keep the fans kind of going, uh, I didn't realize actually that there were that you know you guys are more you know you didn't actually you weren't on staff with these comic book publishers 
or at least uh, Mike, you said you were you were working for Dark Horse oh. for a while. Well, I was I was on their marketing staff oh, for a okay. little while. Before that, I was in the sales department at Marvel for five years. Those were the only times I was on staff at a comic book company. But uh, when I was when I uh, got into the editorial uh, line, uh, that was definitely a freelance thing all the way. I mean, you're, you're as freelancer, you're legally considered livestock. I mean, you're just right. <laughs> you're the last. You're paid after the guy who you know empties out the waste paper baskets and. Uh, sometimes long after. Yeah. Now I'm curious about yeah. just uh, on on the comic book side of writing and, and comic book Star Trek writing in general. Uh, just just a quick uh, question about how how restrictive was the comic writing versus some of what you've done in in novels? Was it more or less, or 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 what kind of dictated the storylines? Well, the the unusual thing that we faced with the comics that we didn't face with the novels was we were writing the Deep Space Nine comic and it was actually the series was on the air at that point. Right. So okay. we were we were much more restricted than we have been in the books where most of the books that we've written have taken place with either series that are off the air or things that were never quite series to begin with. The Titan series, for instance uh, has not been a a film or a TV series yet. Uh, Enterprise, we started writing while it was still on the air, but then it went off the air, and so our later books have, have been after it's left the air. Uh, Deep Space Nine, for instance, I think, was our first book while it was still on the air? Uh, no. Okay, no, It yeah. went off the air in 99. And- right, because we were writing a season 8 story. So um, we... We had a lot more. We have a lot more freedom in the books because we're telling what happens next. You just have different restrictions, though, because sure. when, for instance, with Deep Space Nine, your restrictions were uh, were the things that were, were built in around the hypothetical season eight, uh, or the fact that you were doing the third book of a fourth book uh, series set in the Gamma Quadrant, and uh, you had to maintain the continuity that had uh, led up to it and set up what was to come after. So. Um, I think the biggest the biggest difference in, in terms of restriction between comics and and a, and a, a long form text format was just uh, uh, scope of storytelling. You have to write uh, kind of smaller stories and use fewer words uh, right, to get yeah. the point across. And in a, in a way, that's that's a little more difficult than having a big you know 120,000 words to just uh, you know spread out. Yeah, it can. I could see that definitely. Now, just the 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 basic some of the basic like comic book plots and storylines were those all sort of created by you guys or was there kind of a direction for the series in general or how how did that break down in terms of the comics we created pretty much everything uh completely from us with some of our novels we have had sometimes directives from Marco or Margaret or I don't think we had any directives from Keith for our for our SCE ebooks but we've had some directives sometimes like these are the characters I want you to use this is the direction I'd like you to go in okay. or this is the this you know I'd like you to include this incident or that incident or refer to this in the case of our deep space 9 book we were book 3 of 4 so we had to know where our book started in the scheme of things and where it ended and where we needed to have the characters end up. 
which shuttlecraft we were allowed to blow up or not, as the case may be, depending on the needs of the other authors and their plot. Yeah, you always so wonder if there's somebody out there that's keeping track of all of that <laughs> somewhere. You know, What was unusual with the Titan books, for instance, was we were writing book one and two of Titan at the same time as uh, the other writer was writing book three. Right, the uh, the Orion Towns book, and, and the... Uh, so the the overall storyline must have sort of been outlined at least for for where they were going to be with the uh, the whole story at that point. Well, we had we had some meetings um, with Marco where we, wherein we hashed out uh, a lot of the uh, the sort of mile markers of the story. Some of which ended up in our volume, and some of which were you know more appropriately put in some of the other ones. So um, you know things like the the death of uh, Shakar. You know, we all we kind of came up with that in a sort of a group think thing, and and that we're all you know rubbing our hands together. Uh, all of us authors saying, "Oh, we get that." And that was one that was one Easter egg that we got. It's like, okay, we get to kill Shakar. <laughs> Shakar. Well, just let, Shikar, as we no, get into the, the 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 Titan uh, discussion now, I, I was um, one of the biggest questions I think that a lot of the people on my forum had, and I had as well, is how did you first? get that idea you mentioned something about you know that sometimes for the novels they'll give you a basic idea was this something then that you were approached to do for Riker and his first command and the basic uh, idea of this of that and then you kind of fleshed it all out yeah Marco when when Marco chose us to write the first two books uh, Titan was essentially uh, a very base idea. All all you knew from the film was that it was going to be Riker's ship and that Deanna Troy was going with him to be on it. But that was it. You didn't know what other officers he had, what the ship, what class the ship was going to be, what kind of characters were going to be on it. And so we really had complete free reign. So the question became, what makes this ship different? And the answer that we all came up with together was that what made the ship different was that it was a a melting pot of of alien characters that made it a completely diverse crew rather than having it just be uh, a lot of humanoid or human characters some with crinkly noses and you know some without right, another weird forehead or or something right. yeah exactly Another was, token Vulcan and this and that, you know, like the uh, some well, of the others. Thanks to Chris Bennett, uh, we ha- were able to integrate some really, really alien aliens, really, truly non-human, you know, Larry Niven-esque sorts of uh, uh, takes on uh, sentience. Uh, right, you have, uh, you have definitely have taken, uh, taken probably the... I've read quite a few Star Trek novels, and I have to say this one... The, the characters and the crew, definitely the most non-humanoid, more alien that I've seen on any in any Star Trek novel, and certainly nothing they've ever ever really were able to do on the series. You know, just for I'm sure budget reasons for the most part. Right. But the um, and, yeah, and we ahead. didn't have a we didn't have a budget per se on this. Sure. Uh, you know, of course, <laughs> there's the book budget, but but in terms of writing the stories and creating the characters, we had no budget, so we could say. If we wanted to make the ship's doctor uh, an eight or nine foot velociraptor, we could do that. It's not a problem 
because we don't have a makeup budget, a special effects budget, a CGI budget, etc. So we were able to create whatever characters we wanted and to pull from all throughout Star Trek history and feature as many different types of characters and as many different kinds of aliens and so forth. And in fact, that became the overriding theme of the series uh, because Marco was clear that he wanted it to be about, he wanted to get back to scientific exploration and the ideas that were behind the original Star Trek, which going boldly where no man has gone before. Right. And, and especially yes. now that the, the war is over and, and the Federation could uh, afford to uh, shift its emphasis. Get out there and explore a little bit more and get back to... Uh you know what they what they tried to do a few times, and you know one thing would lead to another, and you know oh now we got to fight the Cardassians or we've got to fight, you know the Dominion or whatever it is. So this well, time, they had a couple of decades of of uh, uh, sort of semi interrupted but you know almost continuous conflict with somebody or other. Yes, uh, you know culminating in this huge devastating quadrant wide war. Uh, so, so it was time to uh, shift the, the focus to something more, more hopeful as the the rebuilding process uh, continued. Now, did, uh, I'm, I'm curious like four about... years into the post-war. And the other thing that was significant about that is that this was this marked the the fact that it was uh, 2379 on the calendar, and the war ended at the end of 2375. Uh, Titan uh, could be among the first ships to include, uh, say, a Cardassian graduate of Starfleet Academy. It's the first time that there had been time, enough time elapsed to graduate an entire class, an entire post-war class of cadets uh, that True, had uh, right. done their entire uh, stint at the Academy, done all their, their whole matriculation since the end of the war. Um, and so that, uh, you know, considering that uh, brought the idea, I don't know who, I think it was Marco who, whose idea that was, uh, that, okay, we'll have the Cardassian on the bridge. Yeah, I think that's great. You know that you know they did the same thing obviously on, on Next Generation when they started out and had a Klingon right there prominently on the bridge, trying to show that you know things have changed, that that enemies can become you know basically friends and work together for the future. Uh, I, you know that's one of the things I think Star Trek has always been about. The the one question that came up in regards to the diversity aboard the Titan was, did you guys ever have any concerns about perhaps? Uh, that you had maybe gone too far or, or too alien. You know, sometimes as a reader, a human reading a book, uh, I, there could be, and obviously there are still human characters in the story, but do you ever feel that sometimes it might be a little hard for the readers to kind of get into the heads and identify with some of these very unusual alien characters that, that ever come up in uh, any, of, any of the discussions? There's been a bit of criticism I've seen online about that, and certainly it was a factor that, that as writers, all four of us who've worked on the Titan books have, have taken that into account. And it's most effective when we as writers will give you enough about those characters. The first time they walk on screen, you should know enough about them that you can visualize them, that you know what their, what their rank or what their station is, etc., but beyond that, when you're writing characters, the characterization of the character should be telling you a lot about them as it is, as to how they relate to the story, as to what their abilities are. Right. Um, and, and that should be a universal thing. Uh, 
Well, that's one of the limits imposed by the fact that Starfleet is a human institution, in which everyone everyone who serves on one of these ships is going to have to uh, find a way to fit in to a, a human hierarchy, even though they, they might outnumber the humans on that particular ship. Uh, Starfleet is a is predominantly a human or humanoid institution, um, for better or worse. So, in, in, in as much as the readership is, too, so there are certain commonalities that are sort of, uh, I guess, baked into the yeah, cake. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, know, I noticed that one of the things you brought out uh, occasionally in the book was was just this idea of you have this uh, sort of reptilian dinosaur-like, you know, doctor, and there, there are, uh, you know, some people aboard the crew, some some members, you know, and not just that character, but others, but there was a little bit of, you know, eh, hesitation, a little, you know, people were a little nervous around him, you know, there, there were things like, you know, it wasn't like this all happy federation, everyone gets along, there's nobody, nobody has any problems with anyone else, there looks like you tried to, you know, kind of inject a little bit more. Uh, well, that was the point, I mean, that was yeah, the whole point exactly. of the first the scene in which uh, Riker and Ree meet for the first time, and uh, uh, Deanna Troy kind of uh, almost lures Riker into you know making a big speech about uh, the, how wonderful diversity is, and and then he meets Ree and he has this this almost a visceral gut level uh, revulsion for you know something that probably is atavistic. It goes back to when we were living in trees, right? And you know we're worrying about getting our babies being eaten by snakes, and there's this. There's this sentient reptile with big, pointy, nasty teeth. You know, uh, um, so well, especially yeah, he, had the a, character he was forced to face being his own. The, you know, a doctor, too, I thought was a real yeah. uh, interesting the one guy twist. everybody has to see. Right, and the he's the guy that's got to help you out and and, yeah. and examine you and things like that. And, and he's very, very, you know, one of the most different aboard the crew. Yeah, well, I, I always saw Rhea as kind of a metaphor for... Uh, uh, racism and other prejudice that uh, uh, many of uh, us harbor while denying uh, that, that that still persists uh, within us. And so, that, I mean, that's why I kind of dragged Riker into that. Whoops. What was that? Uh, and uh, forced him to, to face this thing that he, he believed didn't exist inside himself. Yeah, I think that was very good. I, I, I enjoyed that quite a bit. And I know a lot of people who read it that we were uh, discussing the book as we went along uh, we're also very, uh, you know, enjoying those aspects of it. And, you know, that came up quite a bit in Deep Space Nine as well. And since you guys had experience writing and working on that comic, you know, that was the, you know, one of the, the Star Trek series where they basically everyone kind of describes it as, oh, yeah, this is the one where nobody gets along with anyone else pretty much, you know, as a in a nutshell kind of situation. And you seem to have brought that back here a little bit aboard the Titan. And well, go ahead. The, w- there's one aspect about that. Uh, that I want to address, which is that the thing I felt that interested me most with Voyager when they when they first started the show was when they put the Starfleet officers and the Maquis together and they didn't get along at first. Yeah. And I, I, I felt like they really got away from that and it, it kind of spoiled that a little bit for me. And then you had Deep Space Nine in which a lot of the characters didn't quite get along. And the one criticism many people had of Next Generation was that every it was always everybody get at least at the start everybody got along everything was happy there was never any conflict between the characters and so forth except for poor Barclay right <laughs> and and yeah. when you don't have conflict between your characters it it makes for very uninteresting reading and it also makes for a more 
um, warlike atmosphere on the outside, because if you have no conflict from within, then all your conflict has to come from without, and that's where you get, okay, well, let's, who's warring against the Federation this time? Uh, or yeah, how many the, aliens can you run into each week that are that are right. out to blow you up or whatever? You're right, right. right. Or exactly. if you start getting really lazy, when it becomes well, what's the monster of the week? Exactly. Right. Very so good. So if you create conflicts within the crew, especially psychological conflicts or differences in opinion, then you have a, a significantly more interesting reading experience. And and one of the things that that uh, that we should note there is that that. Um, there were there were both physical differences between the crew members. How do we deal with the physicality of of this? How do we deal with what's the difference in in in, in a Horta crew member or in Melora Pazlar, who is who is used to dealing with light gravity situations, um, or Doctor Ree, versus the philosophical differences uh, of putting a, a Bajoran and a Cardassian crew member working at stations next to each other on the bridge right or uh, other political differences or social differences well i think there was something i'm trying to remember in the in the book didn't wasn't there some comment or i'm not sure how much this was brought out about Riker kind of uh making the titan crew kind of like this didn't he request some of these situations and these and these crewmen for his command uh, i'm trying to recall that part of it well, no, I, I I believe it was the, the 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 basic assignment was to have the most diverse crew. It's a social experiment. It's a scientific experiment. Right. Okay. That they're, that they're trying to have the most diverse crew possible, and try and find a way to. The, the federations always said, "Well, we're accepting of everybody," and yet what we've seen because of television is mostly humans, and so this is them saying, "Okay, if we're going to walk talk the talk, we have to walk the walk as well." Right. Yeah, but I don't think there was uh, uh, any directive to go at. Let's go hire aliens for my crew for you know alienness' sake. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, what aliens but, you got on uh, on tap for today that I can pick for well, maybe, my crew? Maybe it's right? just that we're able to show a reality that's sort of extrinsic to the, the television series, and you know which uh, you know Roddenberry was criticized for when you know, people would ask him questions like, well, why why are ninety seven percent of the aliens? Uh, you encounter in Star Trek uh, humanoid, and he quipped, that, "Well, it's because ninety-seven percent of the Screen Actors Guild is humanoid." Right, I um, can recall. We that. didn't, right? We didn't have that restriction, so uh, we could, you know, maybe, uh, maybe we could be arrogant enough to suggest that we showed their reality with a little higher fidelity than they were allowed to. Yeah, I think the uh, only one I can re- remember that he that he went off and recruited directly was Vale, and she's she was just a human, right? Uh, Correct. Yeah. Right, with whom he'd worked very closely, uh, particularly during uh, the preceding nine books in the A Time Two series, which right. was which loomed very large in the in the origin of Titan. Um, there was a lot of continuity there to uh, that we were beholden to, uh, in addition to what you saw in Star Trek Nemesis. Well, one uh, one question that came up from somebody else on the forum in relation to the to the crew of the Titan, and this kind of uh, I'm not sure if you'll have an, uh, an exact or an answer, but the was there ever any uh, ideas or thoughts to have uh, Wesley Crusher aboard the Titan? Because there is a, uh, well, yeah, a Star Trek I, I, tour is floating around. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that yet, but I guess yeah, there's yeah. some uh, video or something. 
uh, yeah. that shows yeah, him produce... aboard as an engineer? Yeah, right. well, that that probably stems from, correct me if I'm wrong, Andy, but uh, the um, novelization of Star Trek Nemesis, uh, Dillard, I don't remember who did it, but uh, uh, had uh, written, it, written it in so that uh, Wesley Crusher was going to be the chief engineer on the Titan. And there might have even been, I presume that's because there was, there was a reference in, an, in a version of the script yeah, yeah I believe he has a deleted scene in the movie. Uh, yeah, right. he has a throwaway line. I, yeah, I think I believe it was in a, uh, a, a deleted scene. You see scene. him at the wedding. You see him at, at uh, Riker and Troy's wedding. Right, exactly. For a millisecond. For, for a second, yeah. There and, is a deleted all... scene, like Andy said, I right. think, that says he's he's looking forward to being an engineer aboard the Titan and so forth, but I don't think that was included in the official release. But, yeah, he was... Right, right. I don't now, think it even got shot. An interesting thing <laughs> has happened because that specific video, that promotional video that's going around with Star Trek The Tour, uh, is the first time that Paramount has taken something that is from novel continuity and made it into a filmed reality uh, in in this in this way. There's there hasn't been they've never taken any other original to novel concepts or books and made them into a partial reality. And what you've got there is that we were the ones who brought Tuvok on board. Sean Tarangu, um, I hope I pronounced his name right, but he created the look for Titan the ship. And although we created the description of what it looked like that he worked from, he created the look of that. They made a physical model of that that's touring with uh, Star Trek The Tour and that they use in that video. Uh, but... Uh, Tim Russ's Tuvok, that came from our book, that we established that the Tuvok is on board the Titan and so forth. But they were stuck in that they couldn't hire, uh, they didn't have enough budget to hire... Uh, Tim Russ? Uh, no, um, Jonathan Frakes as Riker and Tim Russ, so they did it as Tim Russ and Will Wheaton based on the deleted scene from the movie. So there's a weird... Uh, confluence between book continuity and deleted scene from the movie continuity. And Will Wheaton, to his credit, has said on his website, I'm not sure if this video is quite considered canon. And that's because Will still follows all this stuff, and he knows that in the novels, he's not aboard the Titan. Does that, he read the books? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and as we found out when we got a fan letter from him, so does Tim Russ. He actually wrote us a fan letter recently. Well, fan, you know, he wrote, he wrote us an email recently in which he expressed his his pleasure at the fact that his character was continuing in a positive, forward manner. Right. <laughs> yeah, I gave him copies of the first two Titan books. He sent me a handwritten thank you note. I'd never gotten that before from anybody. It was nice. <laughs> Yeah, there's always that that little tricky business about Star Trek where, you know, you've got the, the TV series, you've got movies, and, you know, you have comics and novels and that. And, and this trickiness of what what's official and, and what isn't. And, you know, and this even goes back to, like, the, the Star Trek animated series. And I've always found it sort of – for the people that aren't really in the know too much – it can become a little, you know, conflicting and a little confusing. And I, I can remember lots of times at conventions, uh, somebody would stick their hand up in the audience and, uh, 
you know, they'd, they'd have kind of a Q&A situation and somebody would try to answer something about, well, how come in this book this happened, but they couldn't do that in this episode or vice versa, you know, and, uh, you know, those kind of things. I, I So was there is there a plan to put Wesley in at any point in these in these books? Are there going to be um, what do you think about that? I don't believe that Wesley will become a part of the Titan crew at any point in the near future. Whether or not it might happen at some day is kind of, uh, you know, it always might happen, but I don't believe that there's a plan to have him appear in the near future. Well, and thanks to his experiences with the Traveler, he had evolved into a sort of almost a super being. And um, Except when he came uh, back for the wedding, which it seemed like he, you know, he right, just Right, which was... is accounted for in the <laughs> Time 2 books. Uh, right. They actually explained what, in, what yeah. happened. Uh, it was either in maybe in David Mack's second book or in Keith's book that uh, uh, kind of wrapped everything up just prior to Titan. Um, but I, I I gathered from that that uh, Wesley was back to the cosmos, unless I'm misremembering something. And I've never heard of any plans to... Yeah, to one of the other things I always think about when these situations happen is like the, the, the classic, uh, you know, Chekhov recognizing Khan in Star Trek II. You know, one of the common... Uh, ideas with that was well just because you never saw this character or perhaps you've never read that wesley you know doing something in the book doesn't necessarily mean they're not there you know what i mean right right you know it's just and the funny thing about fans who argue about canon well this is real and this isn't real and this this is real and this isn't real Uh what's real is that they hired actors who wrote lines from scripts yeah. And they worked with special effects and so forth. That's what's real. Star Trek was a real TV show. They've all been real TV shows. But when you're talking about fictional continuity, and especially fictional future continuity, in which the TV shows often contradicted each other, they, the, sure. there, there were things all over every single TV show that contradicted previous TV shows and later TV shows. And... So when you have pocketbooks who's trying very hard to make as much not contradict itself as it can, then the question becomes, has Paramount approved it? Has it been thought through? Is there a reason for this happening? The reason for Wesley Crusher being on screen at the wedding um, wasn't really important to the screenwriter. He just wanted to put Wesley Crusher at the wedding. It didn't matter to him how or why he just thought it would be cool, and so that's what the, happened. Ditto with Worf suddenly being back on the bridge of the Enterprise E after having accepted a diplomatic job uh, four years prior. Uh, right. No explanation offered. He's just there at his old job. Um, well, that's that's up to uh, 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 writers like us uh, to, to come figure up out with the an answer. Right? Yeah. It. it was about four or five different uh, writers uh, who worked that all out through the course of the uh, the year covered in the uh, Time Two books. And and you know and and basically you have you have one screenwriter and and uh, the producers who said yeah it would be cool and we have to get the whole cast back for the fans and and this would be a really cool thing to do sure they don't care about canon they don't care about history and certainly as as Berman and Braga would later show with with the Enterprise they don't care about what they've written before if it makes a cool show they'll make it how they want to make it. And, you know, we then have to, as writers, come in and say, okay, how can we make this work 
in a way that helps the canon stay consistent. And so it's it's always it amuses and annoys me when 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 people start arguing about canon and whether something works or doesn't because the TV show is or the TV shows were never consistent. The novels actually try and make everything consistent. Try to square the circle. I'm yeah. amazed that it all holds together as well as it does after 40-plus years. Yeah, I agree with that. I was going to say, even though there are these uh, exceptions in, in general, and you can pick anything apart, but uh, in sure. general, well, I, I mean, think... in the words of Ned Flanders, yeah. Lord, I tried following all the stuff in the Bible, even the stuff <laughs> that contradicts the other stuff. Exactly, exactly. It becomes, you know, just sit back and kind of enjoy the ride. It it isn't like okay, the you know, Deep Space Nine blew up this week, and look, it's back this week. You know, the the, the even these little small things that have happened over the many episodes and movies and everything and novels that it, it's pretty minor stuff when it when you look at it. You just should be kind of trying to enjoy it. At least that's my attitude with it. Well, I think I think uh, Michael Chan Friedman uh, kind of made a catch all to every little apparent inconsistency in the universe in, uh, what was it, Strange New World? Not Strange New Worlds. Uh, what was that hardcover from about uh, nine years ago? And there was a story about the Guardian of Forever, and the, the revelation came out that uh, the timeline had been changed utterly about a half dozen times, and it had been changed back almost. <laughs> so there are little stitches and, and little bits of duct tape holding reality together that nobody ever sees because there's, you know, it's in a corner. Uh, under under the couch, right. Well, yeah. the other aspect that that you deal with there, and we dealt with this in our in one of our enterprise books in uh, the good that men do, and our assignment in that book was to not undo the season finale or series finale of Enterprise, but to show how the recorded history that we saw Riker and Troy watching the holodeck experience that they watched that was the final episode of Enterprise, our assignment was to show how history, how the history that they viewed might have been not the history as it really happened. Right, we used ah, the unreliable okay. narrator ploy, which was history itself. And, and when, you look at, when you look at our, under, uh, our human understanding of history, that is born through in so many different ways. Uh, even, you can get People people argue about whether the Holocaust happened or not. Um, right. I, you know, it's, well, not rational people. Not rational <laughs> people, but people do argue that, you know, much less. If oh, yeah, the moon landing, there, there's just countless things that people will say, well, how do you know? You know, I, I wasn't right. there, I didn't see it with my own eyes, so I don't necessarily believe it happened, right? And 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 when you have when you talk about American history in the last 100 years, if you start talking about things that happened in 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 uh, 1907, you will have differing accounts in history books today of things that happened 100 years ago. So what's to say that that's not going to continue to happen in the future? It's not going to be... Right. How many people know that William Randolph Hearst basically started the Spanish-American War for Teddy Roosevelt? Uh, and we like to like... I like to liken the uh, uh, sort of the lens through which uh, Riker saw uh, 22nd century history at the finale of Enterprise to uh, the way we look back on the founding fathers of this country. It's about the same amount of time. And there's a lot of mythology, a lot of stuff that we uh, misremember. We've just been playing misinformed on or never knew. Yeah. Uh, so it's entirely... Yeah, it's a very interesting uh, 
idea, and I, I, I'm definitely going to have to pick up that book because I, I frankly, and I know a lot of people were, I was a, a really big Enterprise fan, and I was pretty unhappy with the finale like a lot of people were, <laughs> probably to put it oh, mildly. Yeah, and uh, it's it's just we you know, hear that a lot. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you and, do. And so I've said on the record before that I was appalled at how Enterprise ended, and and I don't and and we certainly we rarely hear from a fan that they liked how Enterprise ended. I, I well, the think sad the, part I found about it, especially, was that they had time. You know that. They, they were canceled well in advance, and they had time to do something different, to do something really special, and, and yeah. that's the kind of thing they came up with. I, I, I just, well, I, I, I was always... I'm willing, to, I'm willing to give the studio the benefit of the doubt on that one, and I, I and just assume that the whole thing, eventually it's going to be revealed that Andy Kaufman never died, and he's been, uh, yeah, he's been masquerading as Ann Coulter all these years, and he was responsible for that finale of Enterprise, as in the lab. Well, I'll, uh, I'll believe anything show. because that's His just performance art. It was just way out of left field. Now, if that had been just yeah. an episode slipped in at some other point, I think people could have swallowed a little bit more of of what, even with the uh, with Trip and all of that information and things well, that happened. Well, in fact, but... the the one of the writers has said in interviews that they didn't intend that that was trip that the trip that was going to be trip's final fate had they gone to another season they would have revealed that had this been a season finale instead of the series finale they would have revealed that trip was still alive yeah, they just wouldn't have been able to do precisely with him what we're doing because they were on the other end of the romulan war and Right. There, things would have been different had the show continued. They would not have gotten rid of Trip. It was ne- it was not intended that this was the final fate. It was even if you watch the show, the way we dealt with it, which is the uh, as unreliable history that the holodeck program was was not exactly truthful as far as history was concerned. Uh, and there are very specific reasons which you have to read the book to find out. Um, but even if you deal with it that way. If you look at the show, it the consistency of its continuity within the episode itself does not hold up to scrutiny. There are things that happen in that episode that make no apparent sense as they're happening. Right. Why is Hoshi Sato still an ensign ten years later? I mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> exactly. I think she's uh, you know a little overdue there, but uh, yeah. yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting situation with that and and that. Uh, it's great that you guys had a chance. I'm I'm curious though, writing a book like that and kind of almost it sounds like rewriting what you know Paramount the studio backed and what they what they did. Did, did was there any issues with like hey you guys are kind of telling us we kind of goofed up here I think. I mean did you do you get any <laughs> well, like backlash? I think or, that is t- it's teleplay rehab. Yeah, right. Yeah. Let's just say that Paramount was behind that story four hundred percent. Yeah, the, the version that we the version the version that we put out in the good that men do, Paramount, uh, the, the the Paramount people who approve all the Star Trek material were behind it four hundred percent. That's Maybe great. Even that's more. great. That's that's. Uh, I was. Um, we kind of slipped ahead, but I, I did have one kind of general question. Since you guys have basically, it's uh, it seems like co-authored quite a few books, been working together for you know a decade now or so. I, I'm curious how that basically functions or works without getting into the real nitty-gritty do you i mean does one guy write a chapter and the next guy writes a chapter how how does all that play out yes (laughs) (laughs) 
or is it different for each book? Uh, yeah, you know, just a, just an idea of, of you know, I, I've uh, seen Andy generally handles vowels, and I do consonants. Okay, and, uh, punctuation. And we hand them and... off. You know, like every other letter, we hand it off. Right? <laughs> now we we get together. Uh, here, let's give the the, the forty five second version. We get together. We plot the story usually in a pub. Mike drinks. I don't. That that leaves <laughs> one of us to. <laughs> Somebody can have drink. have handwriting they can recognize later the next right, day. Right, right, right. Which is usually Mike, actually. <laughs> and uh, so we plot the book. We we bang it out into what we think is is the story we want to pitch to the editor. It's kind of a beat outline, like a whiteboard uh, on a okay. TV show. Right. And then we we turn that we turn that plot outline into the editor. Uh, whoever that is for each specific book, and they either approve or they ask us to make changes and so forth. Once that's approved, then we break it down into chapters, and uh, we pick out which chapters we specifically want to write. Mike has certain things that he likes to write. I have certain things I like to write. And once it's split up into chapters and we have our assignments, we know where each chapter begins and where each chapter ends, and we we have a, a continuity that's established within the book. So he can go off and write his chapters, I can write my chapters. So we have to make constant you know, course corrections and adjustments so that the uh, railroad tracks meet up properly along right. the way. Uh-huh. Right. And Michael sent, Michael sent me notes that say, hey, I introduced this character here, you might want to use him in a later chapter. Yeah, I just killed I... off Riker, by the way. You might want to make a note of that. <laughs> yeah. so. Or I cut the action, I found a better break point for this chapter, and the thing that I thought I was ending the chapter with actually needs to be at the beginning of the next chapter, and that one's yours. So Yeah, uh, flow and things and pacing and all that, right, I'm sure, right. come yeah. into it. And then once we write the chapters, we turn them over to each other, and uh, Mike goes over my chapters, I go over his chapters, we make suggestions or changes or fixes, or you know, or we're surprised at what the other person came up with. Um, and we turn them back over to each other, and then once all that is done, uh, we assemble it into the manuscript, uh, give it another once or twice over, and then send it into the editor. We shouldn't really call it a manuscript because it doesn't really touch our hands very much. It's an Electra script or whatever, but, uh, and then hit the send key, and, uh, and then uh, it's game on. Well, I have then, to say, the, you guys definitely have a good a good system down, and it definitely works well. Because I, I when I read that book and and the next one, the Red King, um, I, I found it seamless as far as I never picked up anything like a different voice or a different like, hey, how come this just seems different? He's talking about this character a little differently than he did before, or any of that. I've read. You know, I'm a pretty regular reader. I've read a lot of novels that have been, you know, two people writing them, sometimes even more. And I have read other books that they don't do nearly as good a job. I mean, I, I've read books where it's like, what's going on? You know, I'm, I'm like, re- pick up another chapter, and it's like there's there's a whole different attitude or something. I, don't, I can't always figure it out until I, you know, look back on the cover again and say, oh, yeah, this guy, this... This is written by these three guys or two guys, and, and, and it's obvious here this guy's writing this and this guy's writing this. But with with these books, I, I couldn't pick it out. I couldn't tell you which one was which. And I don't know oh, if that's okay. what you're – I'm guessing that's what you intend to do. Well, there's a house style sort of. Yeah, but, but we're, glad, we're glad that you – you know, you and most readers cannot really pick things out. What's funny is that readers who try to pick out who wrote what in these books – 
are 99% long most of the time. <laughs> just opposite. Um, they just need to pick the other guy for which chapter, right? They just Yeah, yeah, oh, like Trip's gay brother. Yeah, right, like, right. Yeah. Trip's gay brother is, is a the, great example. The Freepers and the, and the Mouth Breathers and the Bivalves went after Andy over that. And it's like, yeah. hey, I wrote that. <laughs> the straight guy. Yeah, the straight guy put in the gay character, not me. <laughs> well, that seems like an obvious in... thing. You know, they're going to, you know, that's uh, that's just shows sometimes people, you know, they that, that's how they think. You know, they think just, I, I, uh, I tend to be the opposite. I tend to go with, oh, that's just way too obvious. These guys obviously wouldn't, obvi- you know, I'm using that word too much, but, you know, I, I'm more the, maybe it's a little bit of a cynic attitude, but, I, oh, that's obviously, the, you know, that's Mike writing that part because of that situation, you know, I would think. Yeah. yeah. Come on, they're not going to throw it, you something that simple to figure out, you know. There, there, are, there are times where going back on a book, I have had to refer back to the original, the first draft manuscript, or our chapter breakdown to remember who wrote the chapters because I'll reread something and I'll, or, or, or for instance, a fan will, will write and say, you know, I really love this scene, and I'll be like, did I write that or did Mike write that? And I'll have to look back on our chapter breakdown to, to figure it out because it's, it, our work really is, after 10 years, I mean, I think after one year, our work was really seamless. Uh, but certainly after 10 years, I think that, that our, our teaming on, on the Star Trek projects is, is pretty much, uh, I, I don't think anybody would be able to pick out who wrote what. Now, do you guys, you obviously write some things on your own, not partnered uh, on a book. Do you find the, the writing these books as a team is, is more enjoyable or easier or what, or versus you know, writing something on your own? How does that, uh, is that a factor at all? Do, do, do they ever give you like, hey, we'd like somebody to write a book like this? Do they decide if it's going to be a team book or, or maybe just one of you writing? How does that uh, work? Well, so, so far, Pocket is when they've when somebody at Pocket has approached us with something, uh, namely Star Trek. They've approached us as a team because uh, that's how we've been um, uh, doing this kind of stuff uh, together. Right. Mike has original fiction that that he is he's putting out there to editors. Uh, I tend to write all my solo stuff has mostly been nonfiction at this point, and uh, I. You know, we have we have long careers ahead of us, and who knows, you know, what we're going to write together and what we're going to write separately. We wrote uh, three Roswell novels together as well, uh, so it's not just Star Trek. Yeah, I noticed that as well. I was a big fan of that show. I'm going to have to dig those uh, up uh, on Amazon. That'll be tough. But uh, <laughs> uh, what did you say, the, Andy? That'd be tough. The, that'll be tough. The final one is out of print, and and there's a long story about that. You can read on my website. But um, I don't think they ever came out with an ebook version of it. Which yeah, makes no sense. But uh, the we wrote three Roswell novels together. We've written some of the comic stuff together. We wrote a Zorro short story uh, that's going to be an upcoming Zorro anthology together. So there are other things that we've written together. But certainly, I have novels in me that I'm going to write solo. Mike has already written some novels solo. Uh, so we have we have careers that that are on their own paths, but certainly, you know, we continue to write together uh, in the Star Trek universe and outside of it. Yeah, I think the, um, we were talking a little bit, I think, before we officially started to record a little bit about Star Wars as well. Do you guys have any uh, urges to, to go into that universe at all? Has that ever come up? 
It has. Uh, I used to be very tight with the Lucasfilm people, and there's there's a hope that that may happen again. Uh, I just actually uh, last fall uh, or the end of the end of last year, I wrote a book for Del Rey, uh, which is my original Star Wars, and is currently still the Star Wars publishers. And uh, I wrote a book about the Iron Man movie that's coming out this spring. Oh, okay. And um, so, you know, having reestablished that relationship, I, I think both Mike and I would, would love to work on Star Wars. Yeah, that would, uh, I would definitely enjoy that. I'd, I'd love to get involved with uh, Indiana Jones now that he's coming back. Yeah, that seems to be a, another property that's, you know, obviously going to get resurged this spring. And, uh, you know, they used to do novels. I don't know. I, I haven't really kept up on that. If they've Did those pretty much go away for indie after the movies? Yeah, those, they haven't published a new indie novel for a long time. Yeah. There were yeah. actually a whole bunch of them that were done in Germany that were never published in the U.S. Yeah, there's a guy who I think is best known for writing westerns, I think, that uh, was it James Lucerno. Uh, wrote a bunch of those, but then it just stopped. I think it was coming from Del Rey. I wanted to uh, kind of get this wrapped up. I know it's gone a little longer than I had anticipated, but that's always a good thing usually in, in, in talking to uh, you guys. But I, I did want to ask, and I, I probably sh- maybe should have said this a little bit earlier, but I was curious if you've both been Star Trek fans. I think you mentioned a little bit of you know y- your entire lives. Maybe you could each mention a little bit about you know, what you like about the show and maybe what your favorite series is, those kinds of uh, uh, questions, and maybe some of your favorite characters. Oh, well, I've, I've loved Star Trek ever since I was a little kid. Uh, I think I became aware of it. Uh, uh, so, well, I'm, I was born in 1964, so uh, I probably didn't see it at all in its original network run, but uh, when it had its little renaissance in the early 70s, um, I recall watching it on a on a crappy little black and white TV with a twisted coat hanger, you know, bring the signal in, and uh, I got hooked at uh, probably about about age nine or ten, and uh, started reading the books, and and was surprised to find out that the books were the stories in the books were adaptations of stories that were on the show. Right. Yeah. Those early Blish and novels. The, the Blish books. Yeah. Yeah. And. Uh, uh, so it's always been uh, you know, a big uh, philosophical touchstone for me, the, the uh, optimism it presented, and um, it's, uh, it's kind of kind of interesting now that uh, there's there's a great deal of pent up demand for it, as uh, you know J.J. Abrams moves forward and we start seeing little little viral ads on the internet, little right. teaser trailers yes. for, for the, the film that's coming up this uh, this winter, um, and. Uh, I mean, the, the Times certainly need what Star Trek has always offered, the, the hope it held out. And, uh, you know, the teaser trailer certainly reflect that. I mean, I'm sure it's no accident that uh, Abrams chose to, to use his little snippets of Kennedy giving a you know speech at the this Rice University speech about, uh, you know, yeah, I found, uh, we, I found we'll reach that, out into space. And, uh, yeah, I found and, the uh, trailer sort of, very kind of enterprise reminiscent actually in a, in a way and i i think that for well me, yeah because it's at the beginning it's at the very right. beginning of things sure i mean it's right. from the tls uh, uh vantage point yeah um, all, all the all the real nitpickers all they can talk about is you know the enterprise being built on the ground 
<laughs> but uh, I couldn't even tell that. It's so dark and murky. I, I, I didn't even get that. I, I was like, how could you tell it's being built on the oh, they, they, they've, the guy with the they've picked the thing apart now, you know, a hundred times over. So it's yeah, it's uh, at least <laughs> the, the bit that you see there, and you know, there, there's been a lot of interviews. They, they still have time to CGI a spacesuit around the guy in the sure. welding room. You know, <laughs> you know, it's again, it's to me, it's one of those things. Let's just wait and see what the movie is really like. So yeah, uh, it's a freaking trailer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Calm down, everybody. And in terms of in terms of my past with uh, with Star Trek, you know, it, it it makes me feel old to say, you know, I I saw it on black and white television because most people. In, in young young people these days, uh, don't even know what black and white television is. Right. You know, it's yeah. a tro. Um, but uh, but I actually never star- saw Star Trek in color until I was an adult because I grew up in a very small town in Montana and we had one channel on a black and white TV. So um, I actually I read the the, the books before I, I think I would ever saw the TV show. I I'd seen some of the TV show in reruns, but. But I read the books uh, some before. But I was—I actually came to Star Trek with the animated series by Filmation, and uh, which I love. And Mike and I actually both put a lot of animated references into our books. If you go back through all of our books, um, more common than than the addition of of gay characters into the Star Trek universe is the is is our our consistent use of animated series mythology in the uh the star trek universe so i i i actually i loved the filmation animation uh, the filmation animated series and uh in terms of kind of favorites i tend to favor the uh the the, the rougher uh, take no prisoner characters dax and Worf and riker uh janeway i i loved her when she was at her her uh her toughest uh, you know like scrolling out commands in her Muppet voice. And, um, you know, uh, I tend to tend to like those kind of take-no-prisoners, tough, char- tough characters, even though that's not particularly what I'm like as a person. Yeah, that's... Uh, it, it's, it's interesting, too. Again, I think the people that, uh, you know, that write the books, you know, that pick up on the animated series, just because there was a lot there, I think, to, to sort of mine... You know, versus maybe some of the original series episodes that that kind of played themselves out. A lot well, of good... in a way, if you look at if you look at the animated series and you look at Titan, they kind of were along the same arena in that they didn't have the same kind of budget that the live action series exactly, did. So they could right. do bizarre aliens and strange things happening and so forth. So they had they had some of the same aspects to them. Uh, and that's why we were we were definite that we wanted to put some animated series characters onto the Titan crew. Yeah, I think it would really be interesting if J.J. Abrams managed to do something like that, like slip in something from the animated series in this in this very early. You know, all of a sudden you just see it. You know, Starfleet Academy, like a guy with three legs and three arms, walk by and go, "Hmm." You know, he's do- he's definitely has the budget to do it, and he can. Uh, he can do anything he'd like uh, with this. Every day, I'm pretty much reading that there's some new little character or cast uh, person for the movie uh, that they've, uh, you know, hired in. He's still working on it diligently, so we'll we'll see in uh, next Christmas. I, I I just, you know, I have high hopes for it, and I'm I'm excited about it. I, I mean, and and as a general thing, as a as a cultural touchstone, that uh, 
you know, our, our country and the condition that it's in now, where we're, you know, the economy is, is just swirling around the edge of the commode, and we're in the midst of a, of a war that we can't afford and an occupation that's breaking our backs, um, you know, people really need something to look forward to with some hope. And uh, it's very it's fascinating to me to see Star Trek making an entrance. Not to mention again, they can't watch their like favorite you know shows because of uh, although I guess it's about over the the whole uh, Hollywood uh, you know Writers Guild of America strike you know they've got no no new TV to watch either so right it might be over next week yeah 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 now has that had any kind of impact on you guys at all for that or or do you you don't do anything in in that arena at all. Well, I have been working for the last three years. I've been doing DVD special features, documentaries, and things like that for various DVD sets. And it it actually has impacted me in terms of that kind of work because as uh, as there have been more and more writers who can't actively work on things uh, and the profits have been going down across the board in Hollywood, that also means that DVD sales... Have, have suffered some, and the studios have said, well, let's cut special features. So there's a lot less special features work, and you're going to start seeing a lot more DVDs come out with nothing on them. Thankfully, the Paramount people are fairly committed to continuing to put as much on the Star Trek DVDs as possible. And, you know, one day maybe, uh, maybe I'll have something on the, uh, the Star Trek DVDs. It would be lovely for them to, you know, when they re-release say, the next generation on DVD to, to put material about Titan on there and, uh, you know, maybe to show the little clip from the tour and to interview the Titan authors or something. That would be kind of cool. Yeah, it would, <laughs> yeah. and especially with the new, you know, new format, uh, you know, either HD, DVD, or Blu-ray, you know, there's plenty of space on those discs for, for extra material. And, and, you know, science fiction and Star Trek fans in general eat that stuff up, too. They'll They'll mm-hmm. watch every little, you know, every little minute of it. The first three chapters of uh, taking wing in an ebook format—that would be sweet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's it's a great idea, and I, you know, there's the, the contents there. They just got to put it in, so there's no uh, problem. But hey, I want to um, just wrap up with one last kind of question. What what do you guys? What's next? What's uh, what's the next coming out? Is Titan going to continue, or is there something else you're working on right now? Well, the. We just had a book come out called Forged in Fire, which was, I think that was our second book that we had contracted for, and it took a lot, it was a long time in the birth process, uh, but it was uh, an Excelsior book starring Captain Sulu and his crew. It also has Kor Koloff and Kang in it, and Curzon Dax. Yeah, Bill Clinton was still in the White House when we signed <laughs> wow. the contract. Wow, that's a lot of, <laughs> yeah. a lot of connections. <clears throat> Yeah, yeah. It was it, it was a long time in coming that particular book. Of course, had we done it then, a lot of the continuity would have been uh, uh, wiped out by uh, subsequent events. So it actually worked out great for us because we were able to take into account the stuff uh, Klingon dermatological events from season four of Enterprise. From Enterprise, right, right, right. So we so that just came out uh, right around Christmas time and and in January in some in some cities and so forth and. Um, there was some talk that there would be, you know, future Excelsior stories, and who knows where that will specifically go. And then right now, oh, well, we're in the midst of, uh, we're we're in the, I shouldn't say in the midst. We're getting close to uh, finishing our uh, 
first draft manuscript of uh, the next Enterprise novel, uh, which is called. Are we? How much of this are we allowed to talk? Well, well we can, we can. Uh, I, well, it's called I, Kobe Ashimaru. I actually, I'm I'm a much more online person, so I know what what Margaret said online. And basically, if the editor has said it anywhere, we can talk. Then it's about free it. game, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it is Kobe. Uh, the, the book's called Kobayashi Maru, and uh, as has been revealed in a, a couple of places, uh, it is the start of the the the, the first striking notes of the Romulan War. Uh, ah, okay. Well, that's great. The uh, you know, I'm I'm really happy you guys are are continuing with working on those Enterprise books. Uh, again, like I said earlier, it's uh, d- it ended way too soon for me, and and not on a well, happy I, note. I hope I don't know if you've read uh, uh, the Good the Men Do, not the Good the Men Do, the preceding Last Full Measure. Last Full Measure. <laughs> um, I mean, we've I, I, a lot of books. <laughs> I hope we chronicle. I, I hope we get the chance to chronicle every you know basically every significant event in Trip Tucker's life in between his. Uh, faking his death in the Enterprise finale and during the scenes encompassed in The Good That Men Do, and all the way up to the uh, the framing sequence in uh, <laughs> Last Full Measure, where we see he's you know he's still around at the time when you know J.J. Abrams welders are uh, are putting uh, our familiar TOS Enterprise together. Right, right. Yeah, we uh, uh, we hope to to continue on with uh, with writing Star Trek for a good long time to come. So we're our our. Uh, we're we're doing Kobayashi Maru, and then beyond that, uh, we haven't uh, sealed up any assignments yet. But I think the editors are we're initiating some conversations. Shall yeah, we? Ah, yeah. And okay. The, the, the fans certainly seem to like us. So uh, so they put up with this for what seven years now, or whatever it is. Well, ten years. Ten, uh, ten oh, years I was thinking of pocketbooks. Oh, pocketbooks. Yeah, pocketbooks. Is, we've been working for them for seven years, and and. Uh, uh, and then beyond that, we we do, you know, for those of you who are uh, Martin and Mangles or Mangles and Martin, uh, the fans actually tend to call us M&Ms. Uh, uh. So for <laughs> those of you who are M&M completists, uh, our color is, no, <laughs> uh, we actually both uh, write semi-regularly for Star Trek the Magazine out of, out of England. Mike oh, writes okay. a lot more articles for them than I do. Uh, and we've got content that we wrote for Star Trek.com, the website. We wrote all the material about the animated series that's up on there. And uh, we hope to, in the future, we would love to work on some IDW comics. Uh, they, they have the current Star Trek comic book license. And uh, the fans certainly seem to be very vocal that they would love to see a Titan comic book. And, uh, yeah, I think that would be excellent. That's That would be really good to that, see. If that ever happens, we would love to work on it. Yeah, that's that's a great thing. Now, um, are you guys very avid convention goers? Do you make appearances there? Do you have any plans uh, in 2008 to go to anywhere, like the Creation Cons or any of those? Um, <laughs> I, tend, I tend to sort of restrict it to uh, more local things. Uh, Do you? Okay. Yeah, if I can get there easily by uh, Amtrak, you know, to something that's going on in Seattle, I might. But uh, I'll probably do more of that stuff as my kids get a little older. We tend to, we, uh, you know, we're, we both live in Portland, Oregon, and so we tend to do more things in the Northwest. Uh, but I, I'll, I'll put this out there that any convention that would like to have us as guests, either one, either one of us, or individually or together, 
if they want to buy us plane tickets and and uh, yeah. catch catch our hotel, we'll pay for our food. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not half as difficult as they've heard. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we're we're you know we're great convention guests and uh, and 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 uh, you know the fans the fans seem to be happy to have us. Maybe around. not as great as Keith because we sleep sometimes. <laughs> right, right. Keith the Candido is boy, he's a whirlwind. <laughs> Did you guys when you were you know just as fans, when, especially in your in some of the early uh, early days, did you attend very many conventions? Was that something you were ever interested in very much? I've never worn a pair of Spock ears. <laughs> Oh God, I'm not no, sure. I no, no uniform and no phaser to that and, and ears. I, uh, I, I, on the advice of counsel, I, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm not going to answer that question on the grounds that. Uh, there you go. Well, I, I did. I was an enthusiastic convention goer as a kid. Um, I mean, that's all there was to do. Well, not, uh, now they're almost you know. You know when I was a kid in the '70s, there was no there was no new Star Trek except for the occasional novel from from Bantam. Right. So you had you had nothing to do but you know watch Star Trek reruns, attend conventions, or stare directly into the sun. You know, for entertainment, there was like really nothing to do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's uh, you know there, with, with things. I don't know. Maybe Star Trek conventions still are a little bit of a unique breed. I was going to say that they're kind of uh, a little more accepted these days with things like how big Comic Con has gotten in that, but. You know, Star oh, become mainstream institutions yeah. almost. Yeah, it is. I mean, uh, at least back in the seventies, it was still kind of. Well, you know, they, they everyone says these days with computers and a lot of technology, you know, and, and all of this that all the geeks have pretty much taken over. Uh, I don't know if I believe that because you still get a little, you know, strange stares occasionally when you go into those kind of things. But uh, well, there's an interesting paradigm shift that that I've noticed, which is that in the time since my career started in in eighty in the late eighties. Uh, and and I used to have to explain to people what I did. Nowadays, oh, you put the words in the little bubbles. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> Nowadays, uh, when I say that I write Star Trek novels, people's eyes actually light up and they're interested. Um, whereas in the past, that may not have been the case. So I think that while the geeks may not have taken over, I think that the the ideas and, and the, the, the concept behind the continuation of stories in the novels and the fact people are aware that the stories don't only exist on television any longer. Well, yeah. I think there's been, yeah. a, there's been a real mainstreaming of just science fiction in general because, uh, I mean, look around you. We live in the future. Oh, exactly, we and, and, we you, and look at the kind of things uh, both in, in entertainment overall at both the movies and on television, the kind of entertainment that we're getting and the things that are giving them huge returns on their budgets. I mean, how many comic book-to-movie translations are we going to have this summer, not to mention Indiana Jones and the Star Trek oh, movie yeah. and so forth? Well, so. I, just look at, I just look at what my kids have grown used to, yeah. you know, hot and cold running Internet entertainment. 24-7. Oh, gosh, if it goes uh, down, they're just, like, going, ah, they start to shake and everything. 5,000 cable channels, <laughs> right? on-demand programming of every imaginable type, uh, and then I tell them stories about uh, how uh, we, we didn't even have uh, VHS. And it's yeah, like, when you, wow, when, if you didn't watch it when it was on, that's it. in the woods. Yep, you're done. You, if you didn't catch it when it was on, that's it's it's over. That's your only chance, so... 
Well, I, I just want to really thank both of you guys. Uh, we went longer than I had expected, but uh, again, that that's always enjoyable. We do that. You, you got us started, <laughs> and, and we're you know consider this is two interviews in one. So you know, yeah, that's it. It's a two a for one, longer. exactly. Right. So uh, I just want to again thank uh, thank you guys. Just hang on, and I'm going to stop the recording here in a second. Well, but go before ahead, you go, we'd like sure. to thank the fans for supporting us all all this time. You know, it's it's great for us to be Star Trek authors. Uh, but we couldn't we couldn't continue to be that unless the fans really liked what we did. So thank you to all the fans who uh, who read our books, and we hope you keep reading. And Andy said it better than I ever could. So what Andy said. Well, I, again, uh, thanks very much, both uh, Andy Mangles and uh, Michael A. Martin, for taking uh, some of your uh, very precious time away from your writing. Do you guys write on the weekends too? Yep. Do you? Is <laughs> it an everyday thing? Is it, is it, it's just, uh, yeah, it's just uh, whenever you can do it, you do it. So uh, We've but, just got, yeah, like a, a little over eight days before the next big uh, deadline. Well, so, again, yeah. thanks uh, thanks very much for taking some time out of your uh, your Saturday for uh, sitting down and uh, doing this uh, discussion. Again, I, I really enjoy the books. I know a lot of people on uh, my website and forum and other people I've talked to uh, that I know that are Star Trek fans really enjoy them as well. And we will continue to uh, to read them. And if you'd like to check out our future material or our past, oh material, yeah, definitely give me some you website. Can to, you can go to my website, which is www.andymangles.com. Very good, very easy to remember, and I uh, appreciate that. And I will uh, I'll link that up in the notes for this uh, podcast. So hang one on. One of these days, one of these days, I will set up a website. <laughs> Don't get started, because man, it'll consume your life. Let me tell you. <laughs> Oh, yeah, once blogging happens. Oh, my God. All right, thanks, guys. Just stand by. I'll be right back. Well, I really enjoyed interviewing Andy Mangles and Michael A. Martin for uh, you all listening to the podcast today. That was a great interview. These guys are real interesting to talk to, and we'll have to catch up with them again real soon. They uh, really gave me a lot of insights on on writing and collaborating uh, and just what it all takes to you know put out a Star Trek novel like they've uh, done many times. So I urge everyone to check uh, out their works on Amazon.com. I'll put some links in the podcast notes to their uh, websites and some of the books that they've done. And I will uh, be doing a uh, podcast next weekend uh, as we normally do each week. So I hope you enjoyed this special interview, and I'll talk to everyone again next time. This is Rico signing off for this week. This has been a Rick Dosti podcast production. Thank you.